What up, what up, Meepsters? This is Ryan Rainbro, and if you're hearing this, that means you're about to listen to one of the 99 free episodes of the Meep Meep podcast available wherever you cast pods. But keep in mind that there are new and unreleased episodes of the show on patreon.com slash meetmeetpod. So you'll want to sign up there to hear future episodes and also other side projects like Choo Choo, the show about soundtracks and contribute suggestions for future episodes as well. Will I listen to your suggestion? <laughs> There's only one way to find out. Patreon.com slash meetmeetpod. Bye! Welcome to Meet Meet, the Roadrunner podcast, where each week we discuss an album in the canon of Roadrunner Records and how it informs music today. Let's roll! Alright, what up, what up? My name is Ryan Rainbow, and welcome to the Meet Meet podcast, episode 6. Today we're going to be talking about the Moon 7 Times 1994 album 7 Equals 49 and we got their bass player and former mayor of Champaign, Illinois, Don Gerard on the show today. But before we get into that, the Coyote Corner this week is a very special guest for me personally. Uh, one of my favorite bands when I was a, a little stinker, just stinking up the joint, was a band called Two Skinny Jays and their bassist, Eddie Eyeball, then known as Eddie Big Time in the 90s, was in a funk metal kind of band called Heads Up. And Heads Up was signed to Emergo Records, which was an imprint of, that's right, Roadrunner Records. Quick shout out to the Where It Went podcast, not only for being a sick show about the Revelation Records catalog, not only for shouting out Meep Meep recently on one of their more recent episodes, but also for referencing Hawker Records, a different imprint of Roadrunner on a episode about No for an Answer. Uh, Hawker also had Token Entry, which Amergo shared for the European markets. But anyway, Amergo was a record label that Roadrunner used to sign non-heavy metal bands for their European market. So Voltari, who Dave from Dog Eat Dog mentioned touring with, was on Amergo. LAPD, who would later go on to form Korn, was on Amergo. Token Entry, uh, who would later go on to form Black Train Jack, who we'll be talking about in a couple weeks, also on Amergo. So I got the opportunity to talk to a childhood hero of mine, Eddie, about his time playing in the band Heads Up early on and how that kind of affected his career with Two Skinny Jays. So let's talk to Eddie about that right now. <laughs> All right, I am with today a man who goes by many names, most currently Dad or the, the Warden. Uh, when I met him in, I believe, 1998, just a few years ago, went by Eddie Eyeball. But we're going to go back in time even further than that to 1991, where he was known as Eddie Big Time. Eddie, how you doing? I'm well. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks for asking. Thanks for having me. Is it true, before we even get into this, is it true that you wrote the music for the John Oliver late night home box office television show? So when you hear the little bass notes, I'm like, that's me. Yeah, that's me playing. <laughs> well, so the show Meep Meep, the Roadrunner podcast that I do weekly, Wednesdays, on all podcasting platforms, is about Roadrunner Records from 1993 to present day. I started in 93 because that's when 
they had their first gold record and also the album Chaos AD. But before that, Roadrunner was a force in the European scene, and they had different imprints, one of which was Emergo Records from 86 to 92. On last week's episode, I talked to Dave from the band Dog Eat Dog, who are huge in Europe, and they actually did tour with a lot of the bands on this record label, most uh, notably Valtari, who he mentions in the episode. Valtari was on Emergo as well. And you, unbeknownst to me up until recently, were also on this record label in a band called Heads Up. So Emergo being an imprint of Roadrunner, which Roadrunner was based in the U.S. in New York, and you yourself were also based in New York. Did you ever have any interactions with Roadrunner staff or the office there? Oh, yeah. It became like our second home for the band. <laughs> so we were all living together in Williamsburg. Um, man, we would go to Roadrunner office as often as possible because we could hang out there. There was air conditioning. You know, um, you can get free CDs and just, and just hang out and, and be in the company of people who liked music and were supportive, right? So it was a fun environment. I don't know how happy they were about us being there all the time because <laughs> they had to go about their jobs. But I tried to make it a point to go there as much as I could. So I got to meet, you know, um, Doug Keough. I don't remember his exact title, but he seemed to be in charge of everything in, in, in the U.S. or at least in New York. Um, Monty Connor, who I believe was the A&R person. Um, so he was like high, very important in curating the roster for Roadrunner. Um, but it was interesting because, you know, they were also exploring like the hardcore scene in New York and uh in the mailroom toby this is before he was the singer of h2o he worked in the mailroom as did um todd who i think was in a band called Outcrowd. so you know there was musicians that worked there so it made it interesting to hang out there and, uh, and get to know them and kind of be exposed to other music and there was a band from dc called senator flux which did some interesting things and there was a band from i think madison wisconsin called last crack they were kind of like a, like a somewhat progressive band, metal band, but they also had a, a great singer who some people would say sounded like, like uh, Bono. He had like the really beautiful voice. Um, and then what I remember was, you know, kind of reflective of the time of, of trying to incorporate different styles and, and not be so pigeonholed or uh, not to have narrow parameters to your music was a token entry putting out the weight of the world CD which, you know, um, was really different and a lot of different styles. Like, and I found it really interesting. You know, I, I was willing to, you know, happy to let them go where they wanted to go. I don't know how happy their, their fans were, um, but they definitely were, were trying out new territory in a way that I thought was really, really fascinating. Yeah, it's interesting that Roadrunner did have its hands, especially in the early 90s, a lot more in New York hardcore. Maybe that was because... Toby Morse is in the mailroom and Todd Friend is, is working yeah. there. But but uh, between Token Entry then becoming essentially evolving into Black Train Jack, who put out a record in 94 with Roadrunner, and then Madball, huge hardcore band, and sp especially in New York, also coming out in 94. And then Doggy Dog was also in 94. Kind of had their hands in the hardcore world as well as, you know, they kind of evolved into a much bigger, crazier thing, especially in Europe, where Amurgo would have been stationed uh that's definitely an interesting perspective of how that influence even would have come you know how their ear would have been uh put to these these bands but like you said token entry definitely trying a lot of newer things in their later years and then black train jack even 
more so. I mean, the the album they did in '94, "You're Not Alone," has a Steve Miller band cover on it. You know, really going for it. Mm-hmm. And the uh, the vocalist for Black Train Jacket was like a four octave vocalist. You know, like classically trained guy, kind of doing these punk hardcore songs. So definitely uh, an interesting time in general for music and especially for for the label at that time. That probably started with, like you're saying, like 1990 going forward, kind of figuring out where to go from here with the the end of an era and the beginning of a new one. Mm-hmm. I remember when Heads Up toured Europe, we would, and almost, it felt like every backstage area we were in, there was some dog-eat-dog graffiti. You know, like they had obviously had been there and, and had toured that, that venue. Um, and I, I remember thinking like, man, these, I, you see it once, you're like, oh, okay. You see it twice, but you see it everywhere. You're like, this band is huge. <laughs> this band is enormous in Europe. And then we would come back and they'd say, how is the tour? And I'd tell them, man, this is a huge band in Europe called Dog Eat Dog. And people say, who? I say, dog eat dog. You don't know dog eat dog. You know, like, so it, it was a different time, you know, like you could literally have regional success. You know, you could be really popular in, uh, in Europe as, as dog eat dog was with a certain style that was like capturing, you know, music fans attention and maybe not have that same success, you know, in your hometown, home state, home country. Um, you know, just because of the way, like all the way the marketing wasn't like global at that time, it was all kind of pinpointed that scene in general was just kind of blowing up in europe and i guess enough that you were able to tour there multiple times mm-hmm. doing headlining gigs so that's definitely a testament to i guess the uh the trend of that that time not to discredit heads up just saying in general you know that that sound would have been uh, a lot more welcomed than maybe before or after i think you're 100 percent right in that the european audiences even though you know europe is is you know it's a collection of different cultures right but as far as the young music listener, they were way more open-minded to um, to our music. You know, I had never been to Europe before. The you know, we had never toured Europe before. Well, Heads Up had never toured Europe before, and yet we were playing. We were headlining uh, venues all across Europe. I think we did thirty days, thirty-two shows, and really great audience attend. Like it was never like, oh man, there's no one here. We never felt that way. Every venue, it was filled with people. And I was always like, how, how do these people know about this? But I think that was just, you know, they were willing to, they had, they were willing to have open ears, you know, and check it out um, more so than, than the U S. But I think that that eventually changed. Like, I think now by the time you get to the late nineties, um, you, you know, you saw all different types of crossover crossover became, you know, if you weren't a crossover band, you were kind of like, you were, you were like oldies, you know, in a way. <laughs> Yeah, crossover is what basically new metal was at that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. By the time it became mainstream, but you know, when I when I first heard like new metal, I was like, "Well, this is over. This this happened. <laughs> yeah. This happened already in New York City." And that's kind of one of the great things about living in New York City. And Roadrunner was at the right place at the right time in that regard. Is like at that time the city was growing, and so you're when you're in New York City, if you are looking for it, you can find the next thing, the thing that hasn't happened yet sooner than anyone else. And sometimes the, the bills would be varied, you know, and Roadrunner was right there in New York City at the time. So they, they would be able to see it. The problem wasn't that Roadrunner couldn't pick the bands. The problem was that there was no overriding trend that solidified until basically Nirvana and grunge took over. Like when, when two skinny J's got signed, I thought, well, this is the last one record, you know, because it already happened. You know? <laughs> and it turned out that really we were the record came out at a great time, you know, because that's when the rest of the country was was kind of discovering it. 
Um, and a lot of the bands that became really successful kind of really, you know, they really crystallized it in a way that that became they, they narrowed it. You know what I'm saying? Like they they just they made it more concentrated, the rap and the rock. Um, but, you know, in ways that the, the pioneers were more open minded to it, I guess. Not, not that they you know, not that the new bands weren't open minded, but you know, what I mean, like they they really made it so like, OK, we're consciously rap and rock together. Um, that some of the people who started those that that trend really weren't trying to be so consciously one or the other. They were like they they had funk influences and and you know classic rock influences, but also indie rock influence and just open to different sounds and and intent, I guess. But before Two Skinny Jays, you were already part of this scene because you were in a band called Heads Up that was on Amerco Records that was a Roadrunner imprint. So tell me about that. That's right. Yeah. Um, so Heads Up was a band that I joined right after I graduated college. And when I left college, there was um, it was a really bad economic time. You know, we've gone through these economic cycles. And when I graduated, there were very few interesting jobs. Most jobs seemed to be like selling insurance, which I didn't really want to do. So I was like, what am I, where am I going to go? And I, and I decided, okay, I'm, I'm going to be a, an attorney. Not, not that I wanted to be an attorney. I just wanted to go back to school. <laughs> I wanted to like the safety of knowing that like I didn't have to get a job. And um, just as I was preparing for the LSATs, um, this local band that I really liked, uh, it turned out that they, they were parting ways with their bass player, Drew. And I don't, I don't really know the circumstances, but I was asked to, um, I don't know why they, they were, he was leaving or why they fired him. But um, they asked me to audition and I got the gig. And that's how I got into Heads Up. And I remember that I, they gave me a cassette of their, of their album, which was about to be released. And I had to learn the music off the cassette. I think I had maybe like two weeks to learn it, which, you know, was plenty of time. But the only cassette player I had was in my dad's car. So I, ha I would have to go into the car, turn on the engine and, you know, make mental notes. I couldn't really play the bass while driving, right? So I would, I would be like, okay, what key is this in? You know, okay, you know, I would have to all use all memory, basically, and then go back into the house and try to figure it out on the bass. Um, I think I auditioned on a Saturday, and then they called me on Sunday, and they said, do you, you, know, do you want to join the band? And then I think a month later, we, we were touring England. So it was really fast. Oh, a month later, I think we did the record release party, and then we were touring England. So it really came together for me really quickly, which was hysterical because, you know, in high school, you know, I think every musician in high school is like, you know, all they dream about is, is playing shows. Like you, uh, there I was like in physics class, like, you know, not paying attention to anything and just one day, wouldn't it be amazing if I could play like, you know, London, you know, Rome, you know, play all over Europe or whatever. And, uh, and sure enough, that's what happened a few years later. Like I felt super lucky. And really grateful to the guys, you know, for selecting me, that, that I suddenly was like living out my, my dream of being a touring musician. Was Heads Up being signed to this European label a direct result of that style of music blowing up in that area? You know, that's a good question. I really don't know if that was the, what the reasoning behind signing Heads Up was. I suspect that they were more interested in New York City hardcore, um, that scene, which also was going through like its own growth, its own evolution by that, by that point. Um, and I think that Heads Up was kind of, they were not directly from New York City, but was sort of in that world um, and new people, you know, they had connections with some of the har other hardcore bands. Um, so I think that's why they signed them. But that was an interesting time, you know, like, it's hard to put the exact span, but that the, 
1990 was right in between like the end of like glam metal in a way pop metal had been dominating you know ra- you know from a, from the rock side i should say dominating radio and what people were listening to the big all the big tours were like motley Crue, poison bon jovi um and but that was before nirvana right so so you knew that you were at the end of a cycle of a trend H- how much bigger could you get than motley Crue than like the dr feelgood era you know or or a uh, slippery when wet or something like that by bon jovi and and you knew that like this younger generation of musicians or or just music lovers wanted to hear something different right and that, so that was a really fascinating time because i think from a commerce point of view it wasn't it wasn't great for labels when they don't have a trend that they can solidly get behind but it was um so they would just throw out a lot of stuff you know so you had you had interesting moment in radio where there was a lot of different you know artistic styles happening um, and people were musicians were blending different styles, not just in not just in hard rock, you know, but in, in other music as well. Mostly uh, from the rock point of view, is getting funkier. You know, it's really about like adding more groove and rhythm. You know, um, and then I think that that eventually, like, even though grunge became the overriding uh, trend in the early '90s, um, eventually, like, like you said, the Incubus record, you know, Faith No More was really interesting band they were they were marrying all kinds of different styles and those bands were you know um they were just the ones that became successful there were all kinds of musicians all across america who were trying to to blend and fuse different styles but back to your original question i think it might have been because they wanted they wanted something hard you know like a hardcore band on their label well that makes sense the imprint emergo was started to sign non like heavy metal bands that Roadrunner and Road Racer were more focused on. So they already had LAPD, who members later went on to form current Roadrunner Records artist uh, Korn. That's right. And they had uh, Voltari that I mentioned earlier. Did you ever tour with any of those other bands? I know you played shows with Token Entry, uh, even in New York, but ever do any European stuff with uh, those bands? No, we never did, actually. Um, interestingly, the European tours we we headlined, but, you know, clubs small clubs but um and i think we did one tour with a band called the beyond from england um who are really super talented guys kind of like uh more progressive heavy stuff um but we never really got a chance we did i think we did a show with token entry i don't remember doing shows with any other uh, of the bands on emergo but that's kind of not really that big a surprise in a way because like you said the emergo roster was very varied you know Whereas like the Roadrunner roster, you know, it'd be easier to package those bands together from an artistic point of view and definitely from like a a music lover point of view. Those times when there aren't overriding trends are really exciting because then suddenly you you get to go out and kind of try things on, you know, instead of having to go to the store and there's only two options. Right. You get to go to the store and there's a lot of options. And and then you realize that human expression takes every form, you know, that that it's kind of arbitrary that there's a trend, you know? And now you can kind of look back at, at trends and kind of laugh like, yeah, why do we all, how did everyone on the planet, not really, but how did everyone get behind this one idea, you know? And it's not really the case. And I think that's what's happening now. Now that there's, you know, fewer gatekeepers or hardly any, you know, you can kind of pick and choose what you like and you can find the artists that speak to you and all kinds of, you know, artistic exper- uh, expression is, is available. So you joined the band kind of already in progress, as you mentioned, and you end up recording the Duke EP with them. 
What was that experience like? How did that process go? The rock and roll dream as far as getting to tour in Europe. So you're already on a, on a high from that. I got to imagine going in to record your first, you know, released, professionally released album is exciting times for you as well. Oh, another, definitely another dream come true, you know. And um, again, so I just graduated college. That's when I joined Heads Up. And I went from being an unemployed college you know, graduate with like not a lot of job opportunities and considering going into like, you know, can you think of something less rock and roll than law? Right. And suddenly there I am playing shows or touring. Um, and then the label says, okay, we're going to, the album just had come out in the fall of 1990, I believe. And it was called soul brother crisis intervention. That's the record I didn't play on. That was their full length. And that's what we were primarily uh, playing the first tour of Europe. Um, but then they said, we need to put out another record so that you can go back out in the spring because by the time spring comes around, your record from the fall will be, will kind of, will have exhausted all the, I guess, marketing opportunities or the heat will have, will have fallen off. So even though they were kind of considered like a hardcore band, um, obviously the influence of like all this other style of music, you know, classic rock, funk, uh, some metal, you know, was, was, uh, was already there. And then, and there was no intention to like narrow the focus. The intention was to broaden the focus. Um, and so they gave me a lot of latitude to, to bring up ideas. And even though it was only an EP, I remember like each song being very different than the other. And that made it kind of really cool, you know, um, to be able to do that. And I think that, I think we like, basically the writing came together very quickly from the musical point of view the riffs and the, the structure, the arrangements came together really quickly. Artie, the guitar player, uh, brought some great ideas. Uh, I brought a bunch of ideas. Um, Matt, the drummer, who is a fantastic drummer, um, you know, had a lot of say in like, you know, which ideas he thought were cool and, you know, how to go from one part to another. Um, and then Dave was really responsible primarily for the lyrics. He, as far as I know, he was the sole lyricist except for one song that already wrote the lyrics to and he sang but i remember it coming together very quickly and then musically and then we went to the to record i think the studio was called this way studios it was on broadway in soho and i just couldn't believe that you know from my personal experience i just couldn't believe that i'd here i was recording my first commercial like a you know commercial release and it was super exciting we were working with albert bouchard who uh was the drummer in Blue Oyster Cult and had, um, you know, enormous success in the 70s and the 80s with Blue Oyster Cult, um, one of the biggest American rock bands. And now he was producing. Well, he, he'd always been, you know, producing, but he was the producer for our record. And we worked with this great engineer who in some ways also co-produced it. And I think his name is Paul Special. And they made it super easy for us to record, made, it, made us feel really comfortable. Um, a lot of those drum tracks and bass tracks are not overdubbed. I think we played them together. I think we did the rhythm tracks together without a click track. I don't recall there being a click track. There might've been a click track to, to one or two songs, but uh, most of it I think was just done live. And Artie also performing, and then he would do his overdubs. But man, what an experience to be in the studio, to see all this gear and to understand how the process works, you know, and um, you know, when you're a kid, you just think you go in the band, you go into the studio and you just rock out. And that's, you know, that's how they made Led Zeppelin one or something like that. You think, Oh, that's it. <laughs> you know? Oh, okay. Uh, but then you go and you say, Oh, there's tracks and there's different mics. And you know, some of it's like, it seems almost 
antithetical to rocking. You know, the, the, the day that you spend getting drum sounds could be the most boring day of your life, you know, like, but you understand how important it is. And then you finally get to, to deliver it. And it was really, really exciting for me. And I have very fond memories of, of that time of, of getting to know the band as, as people, the music coming together very quickly. And then, you know, within a short amount of time, I think within like, within a span of a few months, I, I, again, I just went from being unemployed college graduate to being in a band that had a deal, recording a record, touring Europe. I mean, we, went to, we went to Europe four times within that year. Oh, wow. And so it was a really incredible point in my life. What are the biggest differences between recording that album with who you're saying is a, uh, a blossoming producer, formerly rock star of Blue Oyster Cult being the producer and recording it live and a lot more raw. You're saying sometimes no click track. So 10 years later doing something like Volumizer with two skinny J's, it's like this big, you know, multi-track production, multiple uh, personnel involved with it. Yeah, that's, you know, it was a completely different experience. It's funny that you mentioned that. That's a really, you picked the right record because that was produced by like several different producers and it, it wasn't supposed to be that way. We worked with Mickey P, Mickey Petralia, um, on that record and he had worked with some great other artists including Beck um, and we felt he was the right guy you know for us but when we finished the record when we delivered it there was a lot of we had two issues one is that Capricorn Records was going through a lot of changes and then so there was this pause and then we had to, and then the label finally came to us and said hey we listened to the record we think it's great we love you guys but we don't hear any singles <laughs> it's a classic story and we're not <laughs> And, and also funny because we don't, we weren't a singles band, you know, so I don't know what they were thinking, you know? So, so we ended up working with Michael Bradford. Um, and then they also presented like songs. They said, Hey, why don't you try this song? Why don't you try some covers? You know, like, I, and I, again, I understand from their perspective, they're investing money and they want hits and that's how they sold it to us. They said, look, if you guys have a hit, you couldn't be with a better label. We will exploit it to its maximum. We were more of like, uh, you know, we had our own little niche, you know, and uh, that didn't work with their, it didn't work with their uh, style, but uh, style of business, I should say. But having said that, you know, we worked, we had a great recording experience with Mickey Petralia. He's super creative, really uh, smart and hype, you know, just really aware of what's going on in music and trends and different sounds. And he was able to like, he curated that album. That's really what it came down to. Like we had recorded uh, demoed i should say in our own in our own studio skylab in williamsburg all this music and you know we were we were really fond of using different sounds and and trying to incorporate samples and he basically took like all these ideas and said okay out of all these let's just say 35 ideas these are the 12 that i like we're, let's let's firm up these 12 and then and they kept getting like more and more evolved even when we were in the studio by trying different you know different synth sounds and different guitar sounds things like that so that was a completely different experience compared to um working with al bouchard um i think that the first experience is more like maybe what al was accustomed to in the 70s and the 80s which is your band and your performance is vital for the recording you know you have to be able to deliver the you know it's not like we're going to do 100 takes we could have but that's not what it was like it was like okay you got to go in and deliver whereas with volumizer you know that by that point you know the sound design had changed you know it's all about like you know you could copy and paste you know we're already into the pro tools era you know you have to all you have to do is get it right once you know and it that's its own style so you know with led zeppelin or something like that any classic rock 
you could drop in anywhere in the song and immediately, even if you didn't know where the lyrics were, you'd be like, oh yeah, that's the, that's the third verse because of the way they played it slightly differently. Or maybe it's a little bit more sped up in this verse or there's a, as an introduction of a different sound, right? But with a lot of pop music from the 90s and the 2000s, that's when copying pasting really became um, popular as, a, as a, an aesthetic. And the third verse and the second verse, they're all the same. <laughs> you know, all, the only differences might be the lyrics, you know, slightly. But the performances might actually be literally identical because they copied and pasted it. So it was a different experience. It was more like a pastiche. Fortunately for us, like, we were never pressured. Heads Up was never pressured to write a single. <laughs> you know, like, they never said, yeah, you should do this, try this. Like, you know, probably in the back of their minds, they're all thinking, wouldn't it be great if they did? You know, but <laughs> that's not really like, we, we were, it was completely hands off. Like, I don't recall any, any instruction or intervention or anything from, from Emergo or Roadrunner at that time. Um, I think they were more concerned that we just get it out quickly, truthfully. I think they just said, because it came together very fast. Like, we got to get something out right away. I think they were under a timetable to help promote the tour. And that's how it was for the first uh, Two Skinny Jays record as well, by the way. Like, you know, we didn't really get any pressure from Capricorn to write a hit. It was only when we went to um, Volcano Records. So with, I know you said that you were kind of aware of slash a fan of Heads Up before you joined the band, and it's definitely more of a... A, uh, a funk metal kind of thing, especially compared to anything that Two Skinny Jays would do, which barely had uh, distortion on guitar. You know, there wasn't heavy riffs in anything Two Skinny Jays. Was that a style of music that at that time you were into, or that was just the band that you fell into being able to be a part of? Matt, the drummer, Matt Kremelman, you know, a beast of a drummer, like just, you know, so solid and heavy and crisp and like, you know, he was amazing. Um, Artie, the guitar player, super intelligent. Like, obviously, like, you know, when you hear um, Duke, you can hear, like, all the classic rock influence coming. He was a master on the guitar, um, but very articulate, you know. He could play heavy. He can also play very, yeah, very gently and, um, you know, knew how to, how to, like, communicate moods through his guitar. And then Dave HD was, like, a really, uh, you know, unique singer. Like, the lyrics are very, like they're very personal and at least on Duke, they're, they're very, um, very reflective, uh, but very but universal themes, you know, that classic sort of like, you sound like you're just talking to one person, but you can relate, everyone can relate to that. And the way he would sing what, like the way he would have like these, the, at the end of certain lines, he would rise, you know, like the, the melody would rise in a way, like almost like, um, that would create this tension, you know, melodically with the music. Um, a lot of, just a lot of cool things about the band that I really liked. And I think that that album is like a bit of a, in a way it's, it's definitely of that, of that year, you know, it's definitely of 1990, 91. Um, and when Faith No More became big and bands like Incubus and 311, you can kind of see this sort of a similar thing. Not that, not that <laughs> I'm not saying I'm not claiming my band influenced those artists. I'm just saying like, they were probably coming from a, a similar place. They were probably musicians who were really excited about taking all these different things and trying to make something new. You know? Duke comes out. Doesn't seem like anything else comes out after that. So did the band break up shortly after the release of this album? And what were the circumstances there? We had a rough year. So right, I don't know if it was during or right after uh, the release of Duke, or maybe even the recording of Duke, Artie had decided he wanted to go back to New Orleans um, so he was effectively like quitting the band. 
and but wasn't going to quit until after the tour. So we ba he basically like instead of giving a two weeks notice, he gave like a five month notice, <laughs> you know, or something like that. It, <laughs> okay. felt, it felt like uh, you know he's like I'm going to quit after we record the album. Again, I'm not sure if he did it during or right after, but certainly after we do the tour, and the tour was two months, and that wasn't going to start until February or March or something. So um, he moved to he moved to New Orleans, uh, effectively to start a new life. And we had to decide what we we're going to do, you know, and, and he was going to join us on tour, but we wouldn't have had any time together as a band to practice. So we had decided to, the rest of the guys decided to move to New Orleans. And that's what we did. We moved down there for, for a month, I want to say, two months. And then we rehearsed um, and then went on tour. And at the end of the tour, he officially left the band uh, for, you know, like everyone knew. So we went through, we auditioned guitar players. Um, some great, great guitar players in New York that we that we got to play with, uh, including John, who was uh, in White Zombie um, before White Zombie really broke through um, nationally. They had John was their guitar player, so we worked with John on on a tour. Really, what happened was that the the band, the personnel changes, like always trying to find the right guitar player or one who could commit to the. You know, a lot of these guys were doing it essentially like, yeah, I can do it. I can fill in for this tour. They were already with their other projects or, or maybe just didn't feel like this was the right band for them. We couldn't find the right guitar player before our singer, Dave, he, you know, he was going through his, his drugs and alcohol uh, issues. And, you know, when you're on tour, that's the worst place to try to, you know, um, resolve that, you know, just ask any musician. You know, it's, it's, a, it's every musician's story arc, right? When you have, complete latitude and freedom to do whatever you want on tour. It's really hard to rein yourself in. And I think that he went through that period and uh, he basically like, from what I remember, he kind of just disappeared at, at the end of our, right when we came back after our fourth tour and that signaled the end. There was like a collective sort of, well, there was just basically me and me and the drummer, Matt. We're like, well, I guess that's it. <laughs> you know, like it's over. And I don't think the label tried really hard to chase us down either. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I was going to ask you uh, what you would have done differently with the band, but I guess you really didn't have too much autonomy on uh, the end result of what was happening if one member quits and the other one disappears. So I will uh, skip that one, and I will go to this. <laughs> so what would you say your fondest memory of being in this band was? Is it just the, the so many firsts all at one time? Or what, uh, what do you think of? When you think back on this period in your life, what is the, the highlight that you have come to mind? Oh, so you said it. It, it, there's so many firsts, so many dreams come true. I can't pick one, but if I had to pick just, just the opportunity to, to travel throughout Europe for four months. Um, we did, like I said, we did four separate tours that amounted to about four months, maybe a little more than four months over the course of the year. And just seeing, you know, the world, seeing, you know, obviously it's not the entire world, but, you know, for someone who had only been in New York City for all of his life up to that point, it was an incredible eye-opening experience. And set, you know, when I came back, you know, I had this decision to make once the band, I knew, I knew that heads up was over, like literally a year later, the next, you know, by the end of the next summer from the time I auditioned, I was like, well, what am I going to do? You know, do, do I go back to school? Do I get a job? And I was like, I, I, I want to keep doing this. I want to keep being a musician. Like I, I, it wasn't even a possibility when I was in high school or college that I would be a musician. It was always about a career. Right. And music was like, like playing sports. You just did it for fun, you know, um, not, not thinking you'd ever go professional. But that's when, after that, after I got this incredibly lucky opportunity, even though it fizzled out very quickly, it, 
just energize me and mobilize me. I, I want to be, and that's when I threw myself into the New York City music scene. And I was like, I was auditioning everywhere all the time, meeting musicians, and that eventually led to to two skinny chairs. And thanks so much to Eddie for stopping by and talking to me about his youth as a young, aspiring musician who was immediately successful. Huh, story of my life. But you know, when they were all living together in Williamsburg, I sure hope Eddie was getting his protein. And if he was living in Williamsburg right now with a band of people, you know what I would tell him? I'd tell him to go to truenutrition.com. TrueNutrition.com is a protein and supplement company that I have used for years, and once you do, you'll know why. Because their prices can't be beaten, their flavors can't be compared, alright? I just got a five-pound bag of the Cinnamon Toast Crunch rice protein, because you know they got the vegan protein options if you need them. You know they got the whey and grass-fed beef protein options if you're one of those freaks that eat meat or drink milk. And right now, just because you listen to the fastest rising podcast about Roadrunner Records, specifically on the World Wide Web today, you're going to get a special offer by using code RAINBRO, as in my name, Ryan Rainbow, at checkout. That's going to knock off 5%. It's going to knock off 5%. Now you can get another flavor. Now you can get your shipping covered. You don't have to worry about paying for getting those delicious and nutritious supplements sent to you. So go to truenutrition.com today and make it yours. All right, so we go from one bass player to another, and I don't just mean going from Eddie to me. I'm talking about going from Eddie to Don Gerard of Champaign, Illinois, not only of the municipal system of government. Is that the right word? I didn't. I went to a lot of colleges, but I only graduated from one. But not only is he the former mayor of Champaign, Illinois, he's more importantly to this show the former and current and legacy bass player for the band The Moon Seven Times, who released their album Seven Equals 49 on March 17th in 1994 on none other than Roadrunner Records. Don was very generous with his time with me, and we had a nice conversation about making that album, kind of the follow-up and the precursor to that album, and also just a little word association for some notable names from Champaign, Illinois. So we'll go to that conversation with Don right now. Meet me. All right, so I am here with Don Gerard, bass player, former bass player, but also legacy bass player of the Moon Seven Times. I don't know if we ever technically broke up. Oh, okay. Well, then still, current bassist for the Moon Seven Times. I apologize. They uh, put out an album on Roadrunner Records in 1994 called Seven Equals 49, because math was different in the 90s. And uh, that came out on March 17th, 1994. So my first question for you would be, well, actually, you know, let's not even bury the lead, because, of course, we'll, we'll talk about what you've done since this record came out. But you were the mayor of Champaign, Illinois. I was from 2011 to 2015. I uh, unseated a three-term mayor, had my reign of terror for four years, and we uh, had massive economic prosperity. And uh, But uh, to be honest, it was a vacation I, uh, I, I welcome, and it was a, I'm not a politician, uh, I enjoy public service and I remain uh, active uh, as a local sort of part-time activist and, and full-time advocate for a lot of progressive causes. Your name is Don and you were the mayor. Huh? So were you ever confused with John Mayer? I was not. 
<laughs> I've never even, I've never had that happen. Even continue to play, even as mayor, I performed musically several times during my term. We opened up for Dave Perner once, threw together a band, and uh, used to you know play a little acoustic guitar at between acts at outdoor festivals. If you Google the, if you go, like at the time, uh, I played with this band called Steve Pride and his Blood Kin. That was that apparently was a, a hugely influential. Ryan, one of Ryan Adams' favorite bands. Um, it was Jay, Jay, Jay Bennett who went on into Wil play with Wilco during their most, you know, tumultuous and prosperous periods. Well, that's very cool that you uh, have various musical projects that you were involved in. I know that the Moon Seven Times kind of evolved from a band that existed beforehand called Area, right? Yes, yes. Henry, the guitarist and the singer Lynn were involved in that. And uh, it seems like Henry is real psyched on doing two albums with the band and then quitting because he did that with Aria and also with The Moon Seven Times. During Sunburnt, he did not play on all the songs because there was a creative divisiveness between him and, and, uh, and, and uh, Brendan and Lynn. And so is that, that record is actually a set of sort of Henry songs and a set of Brendan songs separate sort of, you know, um, I played on all of them. So I was really happy about that. But, um, <laughs> but yeah. And, and coincidentally, if you, if you look close at the credits, there is a, uh, uh, the arms of someone new were the kind of the first band that sort of became kind of blended into area. Cause it was some of the same, um, creative forces but on uh, one of the area records if you if uh, it got left off of one of the reissues but on the original issue i have a co-songwriting credit because i had come up with a little guitar part and had a friend play bass and ask henry to tape it you know, to record it and say you know maybe someday i can do something with this because i thought i'd try to write songs and it wound up on an uh, area record so the moon seven times put out a self-titled album before seven equals 49 that was, uh -huh. I think, originally put out on Third Mind Records before reissued by Roadrunner? It was originally, the, uh, it was originally, had all been recorded and there was no band. It was uh, the three of them, but they had, but the Third Mind said that they would like them to tour. And Henry said, uh, hey, you want to play bass with us? I know Henry since high school. I'm friends with him, and, you know. Um, and I said, I don't know how to play bass. And he said, us, oh, really not that hard. And... <laughs> And so I actually learned to play bass after that record was finished and joined the band just in time to get my name on the promotional materials and appear on the photographs for the uh, poster. I think we were taking photos for the promotional poster before I really technically knew how to play bass very well. Oh, wow. Well, that's pretty cool. That's cool that he included you in that. I mean, I assume that it must have been some sort of remembering of you doing that little uh, piece on a song from Area, right? And I, I, I had played in tons of, um, like, I played in a pretty seminal punk rock band called the Bowery Boys. I played with the replacements and last who could do shows and solo Simon. We we're kind of in that pre-grunge era. So I was in the music scene and I had quit playing. I was sort of, you know, a punk rock sloppy drummer and I'd quit doing that and started playing bass in some punk bands, which is totally different, you know, but I really hadn't taken it that seriously. It was just more like, well, how am I going to continue to get free drinks and meet girls? I got to do something. So, you know, when Henry asked me, he's like, we got this record recorder. We have to go on tour. I'm like, I, you know, the beauty of my bass playing, I think, is that I was so 
simplistic that I didn't get in Henry's way or Brendan's way. You know, the, the, when you, when you start to, when you listen to the progress, it's really about, you know, Henry's guitar and, uh, Brendan's percussions and other instrumentations and Lynn's voice. So I was just, I was just kind of there just sort of filling out the bottom. Would I be right in saying that the moon seven times being a part of the Roadrunner roster was almost exclusively because of the third mind records acquisition? Yeah. So what happened was uh, third mind picked it up and then third mind um, was purchased by uh Roadrunner for, I think front two, four, two, right. Is that correct? Our frontline assembly. Frontline Assembly, yes, I'm sorry. Frontline Assembly. And uh, Roadrunner wanted Frontline Assembly. And uh, from what I understand, Roadrunner being a big, you know, giant international label that actually sold some records and stuff, um, could afford accountants. And one of the accountants uh, raised his hand at a meeting and said, excuse me, we have a band here that didn't lose money. We probably should keep them too. <laughs> or they paid money yeah so that, i mean it was literally it, it, it was a, a capitalistic move from what i understand that roadrunner said yeah you, you can't you can't drop a band that made uh that turned a profit so they they kept us with seven equals 49 there was uh there's a huge station one of the one of the you know prominent stations in the united states is 99x in uh in atlanta and there's also, a, I can't remember what the station was, but there was a prominent college station in uh, Boston. And in those two places, there was one guy who like said like, I really like this song. And it was like cl the classic case of a rogue DJ playing a song he liked. And we were like a, a hit in Atlanta. And, uh, and we were, I, I, my understanding is we were like the number one or one of the top alternative songs on college radio in Boston. So with those two markets and with the fact that the record was self-recorded with no producer and no production and, and you know, just done for no, barely cost a roadrunner was once again, our record um, made money so they couldn't drop us. It had a fluke hit sold just enough. We uh, toured on our own. We didn't get tour support. We didn't get a lot of, you know, we didn't go in debt to the label. We're actually still making, we were making money and they were making money. So um, it was kind of the same thing. We would go play markets uh, in the Southeast and they didn't have our product because it was selling faster than, because Roadrunner didn't anticipate us to, you know, it was one of those things where they kind of, you know, record labels throw a bunch of stuff out there. So uh, we would go play in this in the Southeast and go to record stores and do in stores. And they'd say, yeah, we've been waiting. Your stuff is all back ordered because it's uh, they didn't press enough. They, they thought they didn't think it was going to sell like it did. That, you know, musical Cinderella story where some DJ liked us in two places that were important, you know. Well, that's interesting. That does uh, put in perspective for me because the narrative that I had kind of put together, which led me to a question that you've already answered is, you know, they acquire Third Mind Records. I didn't know it was to get Frontline Assembly, but I guess that makes sense. I know that they also yeah. had Frontline Assembly. They yeah. put out another record with you guys, 7 Equals 49, because, you know, you were part of that acquisition. And then I was kind of confused how they would have put out another record just because it seems like 7 Equals 49 was almost like obligatory. But you're saying that the reason why is because they were making money off of it, so why would they? they could, drop yeah, it? yeah. When when it, it's 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 not the music hobby; it's the music business. 
I, I worked in a record, versus t- record store for 10 years. And, you know, one of my best friends, Adam Schmidt, was signed to Warner Brothers. I, and my, you know, friends were signed to big labels. Uh, you know, the guys in Titanic Love Affair signed to Charisma. And so I knew how the record company, record business worked intimately. And I knew people who worked for record labels. I knew A&R guys. I knew promotional guys. And I knew bean counters and people who worked. And when we would go, when we went to Roadrunner, um, a lot of the hipsters and stuff were just like, yeah, you know, to be honest, uh, the guys, you look at the roster and Roadrunner really stuck out like a sore thumb. And it was more of a case of somebody saying financially, you know, maybe we should expand. And that's why Kevin Salem was signed and Blue Mountain was signed. And, there, you know, there was these other bands that were not going on tour with Ozzy Osbourne, who became part of the uh, Roadrunner roster. They basically said, because you're making money, they're like, well, who else is out there that we can sign? Although Pete Steele was a big Moon Seven Times fan, and we used to go watch them play and, and saw them open up for uh, Tesla or some big band. And and Pete was just the sweetest guy, and he just he loved us and always like uh, would uh, bitch at Roadrunner about how they should really like push us and promote us because he liked our music. But we like I said, we weren't going on. We weren't going to be on the Ozfest roster. It it was really it was really rolling dice. You know, Kevin Salem's record, um, both of his records on Roadrunner are fantastic. I mean, they're just so good, and he was like. He was one of the ones who was thinking about producing our third record. So we met with him and now I'm pretty good friends with him via the internet. You know, we chat quite a bit and he shares me his new material, but I mean, that guy's a huge talent. And um, you talk about, I'll listen to Kevin Salem over, you know, Matthew Sweet or a lot of the stuff that did happen to break at that time. But Roadrunner didn't, you know, that, that wasn't their niche. And, and so when you have this huge roster of artists, uh, it really is just running up the flagpole and hoping something has a hit because Moon Seven Times didn't tour a whole lot. And um, it wasn't until we had the hit with my game that we really started like getting booked. Like we'd get booked to play at like fraternities at the university of Illinois, which is just bizarre, but uh, they loved it. You know, they, they thought they were the cool, they thought they were the coolest guys because uh, you know, they had an original band that actually had a song that was being played on the radio every 45 minutes. So you mentioned My Game being the hit, which definitely is a standout on the album in general, mainly because it has that, you know, guitar lead halfway through it. But uh, it seemed like Guppy was kind of more poised to be the single off the album, if you can call it a single. I know that you guys weren't exactly a single-driven band or anything like that, but Guppy seems like it's the one that appears on compilations and, uh, and things of that nature. So was there... Was it just a matter of, like you said, this DJ picked my game, so you had no real hand in it? That's exactly what happened. It was never released as a, as a proper single. It was never a cassette single. It was just purely, that's the one that they played. And there was also a guy who had an overnight on uh, WXRT in Chicago, which is the huge you know station for breaking alternative acts. And he loved it, too. And that was the track they picked. Because um, ironically, so again, that record was... Uh, principally um recorded in henry's living room and uh i only i helped write i got songwriting credit on john because i was there when we wrote it and i came up with the the sort of like bouncing bass line and they felt like that was enough of a it it, it changed this it pushed the song into a level that 
deserve to give me 25% of the songwriting. I thought that was a good single myself, John, because I thought that that sounded mostly like, at the time, the Cranberries and things like that that was on the radio. Um, but uh, I only literally played on uh, Knock on that record. It's the only song. Henry played all my parts on everything else because part of it was out of convenience and part of it was out of Henry like to just have control over stuff. And I was a little bit at the especially at the time I was more um open to saying like yeah I don't care <laughs> you know it's like my ego doesn't care because I'm gonna get to go play these things these things live on stage but my game is a Brendan demo he played everything on it we're so, talking about Brendan the drummer who also Brendan produced Campbell, the album the drummer, had a broken keyboard that is this, the, the the weird sound at the beginning. He had some had a broken patch bay. It made a weird sound, and he recorded it and looped it. And uh, he played the keyboards. He played the guitar lead. He played the bass. Um, and Lynn sang. So that was actually – he had done that whole thing as a demo. And uh, I think at the time they thought, like, well, this sounds – you know, why bother? We'll just throw it in there. And then that was the one that became the hit. So the irony is – for all of uh, Henry's really, you know, Henry was a genius with the guitar effects and stuff like that. He was really, you know, he really, he, he really took his, his craft seriously, but for all of, uh, I think that was a little bit of a, a burn under his saddle was that the hit he wasn't on. Yeah. For, I, for, that basically was his band, you know, and, and Brendan was brought in as a drummer submitted a demo got put on the record and the dj said this is the song to play i mean in all fairness when i listen to the record that would be my pick as well it, it stands out so much again just because of that guitar lead there's such little uh i don't want to say electric guitar that's not fair to say there's no distortion really on any of the guitar and so having yeah. that you know really sharp lead come in in the the two minute mark or so of my game yeah. it just really brings life into it so it's it's hard to deny that that would be the hit Exactly. And, and it's not to say, you know, and, and uh, yeah, and there's, there's no effects laden guitars on it. I mean, and, and the same thing with the third record. If you look at the songwriting credits, you say like, oh, you know, all the songs that uh, Henry stayed home on don't have the signature Henry sound. But, you know, Henry did quite well. He, he went on with Lanterna. He continues to this day to have working vacations touring the world. He'll put out a Lanterna record and go on tour and pay for itself and have a nice vacation. So, But, yeah, I was going to ask you because I noticed that you are in, only credited on Knock, but that, that answers the question. So you're there for the process. You just didn't really care about Yeah, playing. yeah, I, I was there for writing the songs because cause if, you, if you look at the writing credits, I might have, I might have on another record too because I, I was surprised. And to put it into perspective, so all of our stuff has been re-released by Rhino Warner Brothers now, and I literally get a, uh, a statement every four months that's about 37 cents for our entire catalog. Um, and it's getting played. If you look at Spotify, we have plays. It's not that nobody's listening to it. But I wrote one-fourth of one song on one record, and uh, I was getting checks every four months for like $1,000, $1,500, $2,200. I mean, it was, it was getting played heavily globally, and it was at the time when royalty statements. So I can imagine that our – you know, I can't imagine how much uh, – how many plays my game garnered because that was just from I got one fourth of John and in four months I'd be getting you know over a thousand dollars in play royalties 
So it was we, – we, there was a little spot there where around the globe – uh, they're playing us on the radio and uh, the tracking from uh, BMI was, was picking it up and recording it and, and paying us for it. Well, it definitely puts in perspective a different perspective for me for my next question, because I noticed that the drummer, Brendan, who you're telling me now wrote the song that I like the most <laughs> on the album is also the producer. And uh, a exactly. theme of this show for lack of a better term, is that the albums with no producer or a band member producing it are typically not as focused sounding or uh, I don't want to say polished because that's not the term I'm thinking of. But I see I tend to like albums that have a, a, a new party coming in and kind of structuring it a little bit better than I do ones that are a little bit more freeform. So the follow up Sunburnt has Trina Shoemaker as a producer versus Brendan and it seems like those songs are much more structured. You know, they're closer to like three and a half minutes versus some of these on seven equals 49 can go to seven, eight minutes long. So what was the biggest difference for you working with a outside producer than working with Brendan? There was an interesting side story to that as well as we submitted our demos. They had penciled in our um, recording session and because we had made money on our last record, they were going to get a pay a producer. We were going to go to Echo Park for a month, I think, and live in a little remote cabin and only go to the record and this little house on the lake. So we'd be completely focused and immersed in the music. And um, we had tour support coming in and we were being given money to buy new equipment and we were getting uh, sponsorship deals. Like I got a Washburn acoustic bass on a partial sponsorship, you know, corporate sponsorship. And so um, all these things were coming together and it was when, (laughs) before we picked a producer, or no, I think we had pranked the producer, but we submitted the demos. And I can now um, cook pretty well because Roadrunner rejected the demos um, because they didn't hear any hits. And we had to go back and start over and rewrite songs to submit. And during that time, I was all prepared to go in the studio and go on salary, you know, small salary from the record label. And since it got pushed off by six months, I wound up working at a restaurant and and uh, doing a bunch of other stuff at the time while we put together new demos. But the demos that were originally supposed to be sunburned were more like the first record and Roadrunner rejected it. So what happened was, is you get a lot more, uh, you can tell when you listen to the record, this is a Henry song and this is a Brendan song. Brendan was, Brendan was brought in to write more three minute possible hits. And I think that was the beginning of the end. Cause like I said, it was really, it, it was really, um Henry's baby and and when that happened it it started to become more about Lynn and Brendan I I think that's why that third record sounds so much more starkly different and Trina was a she was wonderful she was so much fun and she at that time was already you know uh best friends with Cheryl Crow and all the stuff she hadn't won any Grammys yet but she was uh poised for all that stuff and she's now one of the most uh celebrated uh, producers period certainly one of the most uh, successful female producers in the business but at the time this was supposed to be like her first shot to have something break you know big but with Trina well and that was the irony too was the recording studio was like a pretty good distance away from where they had put us in this like somebody's vacation house and the idea was we would go home sleep be out in the woods and the peacefulness, focus on the music, and then we would all go in the studio and work for 14 hours a day. 
But what ended up happening was um, I think Henry rented a car. I can't remember what it was, but we started going in separate cars. And actually, so there was days where I was in the studio with Lynn Brennan and, and Trina and Henry would not be there for days at a time. And then there was other times when he would grab Trina and go in by himself without us and record. So you're saying that the pop sensibilities of the Sunburn album are more so because of Brendan, not so much because of Trina? Yeah, Brendan, I, I, he, he did a number of solo projects and he, had the, he put out this local tape called Sand Dancing and he had made his own sort of little anonymous sell five copies of them tapes of songs that you listen to and go like, good Lord, this could have been a, a club hit. And then Lynn's, you know, Lynn was the melodies and, and the voice and uh, the words. And, and we've said it before that, you know, the irony is that it was uh, really Henry's band. It was really Henry's vision was the original first record. Brendan really started to show. And Lynn and I say the irony now is if we did a reunion tour, the only people anyone would really care to see there are me because I was mayor and her because she was a singer. <laughs> so <laughs> even though the other two guys are like the driving force. It's sort of like if we showed up with a guitar player and a drummer, people probably wouldn't be all that disappointed unless they were hardcore fans. So. Well, it is ironic too that we're talking so much about Henry, guitarist, and Brendan, drummer, uh, because I don't think that the moon seven times would be something that people liked as much as they did or liked at all without Lynn, without those vocals. Oh, of course. And her, her, and she was just, she is and remains just a lovely soul. I mean, and she's a lovely person. And if you, you know, you look at that uh, picture of us on the couch, that was us. As we mentioned before, area is kind of what became the moon seven times for lack of, I mean, I know that's not exactly what happened, but the driving creative force and voice of area becomes the moon seven times so you may and not some, I, I think literally I, I if i'm not mistaken literally some of the area songs are uh moon seven times songs you know that's actually what i was gonna say so the end of uh this album ends with properly it ends with uh i'll gather flowers in any way which are both area songs kind of re-recorded but the song before that the last uh, original song for this album is uh curling wall which even kind of feels like an outro it has this fade out and then it comes back in and these two area songs are kind of tacked onto the end along with these you know random bonus tracks that we'll talk about in a second but yeah what was the idea behind including these old because i was looking at when these original area songs came out it was years before it wasn't like they were out a year prior or anything it was a long time before this album came out so what do you think the reasoning was for including those on this uh you know to be honest <laughs> Um, I'm going to just speculate here okay. and say that uh, when we would practice at Henry's house, there was always piles and piles of uh, sorted recycling and everything was saved. He wasn't a hoarder. He was uh, an environmentalist. And I think everybody in the band was very, well, were very much about um, being good human beings. They didn't eat meat. They recycled. They didn't waste things. Treat your musical catalog the way Native Americans treat a bison. Use every part of it. Don't waste it. Don't throw it away. If there's a part that can be re repurposed that's good, then bring it back. And that's I, 
I could be completely wrong. It could have been, yeah, we just didn't have enough songs or it could have been, yeah, we just think that that one deserved a second chance. But um, I think part of it was just like a real outlook on life on, uh, you know, you don't throw things away. Well, that actually is pretty sick that they're so into recycling that they'll also recycle riffs and hooks. Conscientious and respectful of everything, of animals, of trees, of plants. I mean, Lynn, Lynn would, you know, compost everything. And she was a vegan for a long time. Pretty cool. I've been vegan most of my life. I'm a hippie recycle guy. Backstage, we'd always have someone would make us a vegan meal, which is fine. I didn't mind. Um, but they rubbed off on me. I mean, I really enjoyed, uh, because our writer was so difficult, it was usually the promoter had to find some hippie friend to make us dinner. Well, and a vegan meal in the 90s wasn't what a vegan meal is in 2022. So people should put that in perspective. You weren't eating like Beyond Burgers. You were having... No, it was, it was, it was, they had, they had, they had to do their homework. They had, they had, a, and people were really good about it. Um, we, we met a lot of really nice people. And I think that might've actually helped expand our music because it might've been like, Hey, you know, you know, doesn't, isn't Jerry a vegan? Can he, can we pay him to make dinner for this band? And then Jerry like winds up seeing the band. And, and then all of a sudden we have new fans and his entire, uh, hippie co-op is now a moon. Time. <laughs> Very cool. Very cool. A lot of really, I think, unique things. It was, it was, um, it was different than I, my experience of touring with all the, a lot of other bands. And I was oftentimes the odd man out. And uh, but I, I think I was. I'm, I feel grateful that I was wise enough to sort of. Uh, I rebelled quite a bit, but but that I also bought into a lot of it and just gave it a chance because we we did have some. Um, really different experiences I think than a lot of uh what you would standardly expect and I think that is it, it makes the tour and trips on the road better when you when you start to meet people by virtue of they have to find someone to cook you dinner <laughs> a devotional relationship like that exactly what kind of bands did you tour with because you said that Roadrunner really wasn't the ones providing tour support so I guess they weren't putting you on bills with their other heavier bands uh, so what bands did you guys play with we, we opened for Frente, and otherwise, we were always pretty much the headliner with a local. The first record came out, and we didn't, you know, we played some local dates and regional dates. We didn't really tour on the first record. The second record came out really quickly afterwards, <laughs> and my game took off so quickly um, that we could play in big markets, and we were usually headlining smaller venues. So, I mean, the biggest things we played were like uh, – I mean, we played like an open air festival with 5,000 people or something in Champaign. That's our hometown. But um, there would be people there yelling, what, you know, or asking us afterwards where we were from, which is cool because, you're, you know, you're, you're, you, you seem to be so big you couldn't possibly be from here. <laughs> uh, we played a ton of uh, record stores. We uh, Roadrunner signed a deal with Borders. So when we were on tour, we would play at a Borders bookstore in the afternoon. And that was like really super popular and a good way to sell a few records is uh, Brendan had a real stripped down percussion thing and I had an acoustic bass and uh, we would just quietly play in bookstores. Yeah, we, 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 were, we were a big bookstore band, actually. 
I do feel like they pioneered the the gimmick that Barnes and Noble and Books a Million kind of took over later with having like the coffee shop in there. So you would meet up and listen oh, to music yeah. or talk about books or whatever. I don't feel like those bigger. I know Walden Books, which was the other bookstore that I used to buy my comics from. They didn't have yeah. a coffee shop espresso machine gimmick in there. No, no, they, they, they did that. And we had a place here called Pages for All Ages that did the same thing. They, they started out and people loved it. They were just like they had it was like it was like the public library. It was like come in and read books. What does the title seven equals forty nine mean? I know that seven times seven equals forty nine. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, I'm really embarrassed by it because I didn't know it. And Lynn in the interviews would always invariably say, um, it's a math joke and Don and Don and Brendan made it up. And we didn't. And I didn't know what it meant. Um, but it's so stupid. It's the moon seven times. So if you drop out the moon, it's seven times sevens equals 49. And I don't know where sunburnt came from either. I had, I had my own list of album titles and they were rejected. So. I mean, sunburnt is also kind of like a dumb joke, like the moon, but you're getting sunburnt. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And um, the creative force, I love the record, the cover. Um, but I think Henry and Brendan didn't. I think they thought it looked depressing and uh, it bummed them out. What does the moon seven times mean? That was taken from uh, another thing where they like, Lynn had had all these books and one was like a, a benign book of like Wiccan, I think Wiccan, maybe it was, maybe it was something else, like magical spells. And uh, they were sort of just thumbing through and one of the, things was you know you do this and you put this and this and you light the candle here and then you say these words and then you tip your turban to the moon seven times so the album has 14 tracks 12 before the two area songs two of which are intros so you got 10 new songs two re-recordings and then there's these collection of I guess bonus tracks for lack of a better term. It's kind of like weird demos. There's phone conversation or voicemails, things like that. Whose idea was it to just throw all these extra tracks at the end of the album? That was like a combination of Michael Rue, who was our, I think it was Michael Rue, who was our manager at the time. Uh, CDs were new and he had realized or, or noticed that, uh, or somebody, maybe it might have been Henry or Brendan, I don't know, but I, but I remember Michael talking about it, was the idea that like uh, CDs were this new wonderful format because unlike records, you could, uh, you know, the newer CD players had the ability to shuffle play like you have on Spotify. And the idea was we thought that it was going to jumble everything up so you could listen to stuff in a random order and between the songs you would have those little snippets in oh. retrospect you should just put the snippets between the songs <laughs> no. but the idea was that you would hear you you'd push shuffle play and it would play guppy and then you would hear some birds chirping and then it would play you know, curling wall that's actually a really cool idea because it's you're getting the interludes, but you are getting them a different experience every time you listen to the record. Yes, that was the idea, and nobody did it, and nobody got it, but it's okay. Because you were actually featured on all of the songs on Sunburnt, did you did you like those songs more? Like when when they were coming out, were you, was it something that you were yeah. like, oh, these are great? I thought Sunburnt was the record. I thought like this is the great record. And Sunburnt has a lot of moments, and it's a 
to my, it's a very heartbreaking account of a band and a group of people and friends falling apart and a marriage dissolving. And, uh, but yeah, no, 70 equals 49 is, uh, I, I think beginning to end, just, just an absolutely gorgeous, uh, collection of, of music and, uh, timeless, just timeless. Uh, we could, at the time we would literally be told by, uh, programmers we're already playing five female vocalist artists we can't play anymore so it was like we were the whole we were right you know me as a as a white cis male was affected by the whole misogyny thing because they said like we love your thing but i'm sorry natalie merchant and sarah mclaughlin and the cranberry you know there's these other ones ahead of you and you're in the next five and we can't have that many women singing on the radio. This is a, gr- it's a great record. It's not, it's not, you know, and the, the single was a fluke, but I think it still fits in, but it, it's not like, you know, go put on a, a I don't want to name any names, pick some female artist out from that era and listen to her whole record and say, is this a great record beginning to end? Can you put this on and just be like, that was a great record. It's not a collection of singles. It's not a collection of songs. It's really, I don't know. It just flows. It has a it has a it has a continuum. It has a feeling and an atmosphere that just it, it it nails it. It's just it's a really. I'm very 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 proud to have my three notes I played on one song on that record. I agree. I definitely think it feels like a complete album. Like it's something that you do listen start to finish. You don't just put on a song. But even my game is almost feels incomplete without hearing everything before and after it. It's such a centerpiece literally in the middle of the album. And also just in general, it, it, it feels like a better song and like it has more of an impact in the midst of the other songs, a piece of a puzzle, you know, it goes, it, it's that middle piece that completes the puzzle, but you need to see the whole thing to be able to really get it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the irony of the whole like gimmicky um, wanting to throw the stuff in or thinking that people were going to shuffle it. I think um, it didn't hurt it because nobody cared, nobody tried or whatever. But in retrospect, it's like, that's the worst record to do that to. I don't think you do jumble up those songs or break them up. I think that, I think it like, it's, 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 it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful piece of work being like from the, from the opening, uh, you know, knock intro guitar stuff, which was, I think named because literally Henry is knocking on his guitar tapping on his guitar body to create those waves of, uh, of, of uh, feed, uh, effects feedback. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, yeah, I think it's how it got its name. So as you mentioned, Trina Shoemaker was already best friends with Sheryl Crow around the time that she was producing your album. In 98, she wins a Grammy for producing Sheryl Crow's album. So my question would be for you, what's your favorite version of Kid Rock's picture? Is it the one with Sheryl Crow <laughs> or the Alison Moore version, being an Americana guy yourself that you mentioned? Uh, oh, I am uh, Steve Earl all day, Alison Moore. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, we'll just wrap up a little word association about your hometown that you were the mayor of, Champaign, Illinois. All right. All right. The origin site of the State Farm Insurance Company. Do you have a preference on your Jakes from State Farm? No, none whatsoever. You like all the Jakes? They're fantastic. Khakis. 
we have the State Farm Center here because it's the the athletic facility because they needed to renovate it. But I didn't realize State Farm was from here. Kraft has its largest food manufacturing plant here. More cheese food products and stuff coming out of here than anywhere else. Well, why don't you let Kraft know that we're in 2020 and go ahead and wrap it up with the vegan powdered cheese product because I'm, yeah. I'm ready to boil some noodles and pour that weird moon dust right on the old yeah. boiling water. Let's go for it. Jimmy John's started in Champaign, I know Illinois. Jimmy, I know Jimmy John. You know James John himself. Jim James Leotode. Yeah, he, I uh, lo- love hate relationship. Uh, he's uh, he's a he's a mad genius with the potential to be uh, do great things. And for whatever reason, he likes to split the difference between great things and awful things. He actually doesn't get as much credit for. Um, he's a, a really big philanthropist and has like our uh, crisis nursery where they take care of kids who are in endangered. Uh, situations and stuff uh probably has donated i would say close to half a million dollars to them um he, he's he's uh funded uh, a bicycle trail that goes from champagne and it's going all the way i think it's going all the way to danville which is like 20 miles or something like that it's a bike hiking he's a big conservationist he's a he's a complex man bands from champagne illinois Okay, we got Braid and Hey Mercedes, which were kind of coming up when you guys were around. So did you ever play with them? Yeah, we play with them a lot, and I used to go see them a lot. I loved hanging out with those guys because they were a little bit younger, but they loved us because we were like a real band. And I would go see them playing garages when all ages shows and stuff and cap and jazz and all those things, you know, all those like emo bands. But one time we um, (coughs) – there's a local event that goes on to this day, and it's always for like a different charity, but it's called The Great Cover-Up. And the Moon Seven Times once did Van Halen wonderfully, really good, like straight Van Halen, like Henry can rock. And uh, one time we did, Henry didn't want to play with us. He had something else to do and he thought it was beneath them or something. But we wanted to do um, Alice Cooper. And so Henry wouldn't play. So we got my friend uh, Bill Whitmer, who played a ukulele through a Marshall, and we did Alice Cooper. And on Schools Out, we had called the guys up from Braid, gang rushed the stage and sang the backups and hollered and hooted and partied and stuff during schools out. So if I could ever find the video recording of that, it would just be absolutely epic. Hum recently had a revival in their career where I saw them three years ago and nobody was there. And then last year I found out, or this year, when they put out that new album, they're everybody's favorite band. Good friends of ours, always been friends with, still friends with them. They still hang around here. They still live here. Uh, my son and uh, Matt Talbot's adopted son were playing hockey at the same time. So it was a brief time where we would go to the University of Illinois ice rink. And since there's only one slab of ice here, the uh, you know six and seven and eight-year-olds got to practice at eight o'clock in the morning on Saturdays. So we would sit next to the slab of ice and not talk to each other or chat a bit, but uh, yeah, he's great. He's awesome. I think we rehearsed at his studio too. He owns like part of a town called uh, <clears throat> Tolono where there's like a bunch of empty buildings and he started getting little grants and things and buying them and put it in a recording studio. Then he bought another one and put it in a bar called the loose Cobra. Um, so kind of fun. Owns part of a town. Matt Talbot, uh, famously, not famously, famously uh, featured on a North Carolina 
metalcore band Hope's Falls song that they wrote that sounded just like a hum song, and then they got him to be to sing on it. Very strange. Also hated by Howard Stern, and to this day he'll still periodically wonder what ever happened to them. I hope they're all broke. Those guys are assholes to me, and they weren't. They were just they just didn't like gush all over him. Ransom Eli Oldsmobile Speedwagon. They are uh, they are what they are. I appreciate that they're. Uh, Good guys. I appreciate that Bruce is, uh, even though they are the band itself is associated with a lot of uh, kind of right wing entertainments and stuff. He's he's a really uh, proud progressive, and they have a lot of fun. And uh, I've seen them several times, and it's just fun. And when we did that, Jimmy John and Shad Khan, you know Shad Khan, he owns Jacksonville Jaguars. He's the guy at the... Yeah, because his son owns a wrestling company, and I'm real into wrestling. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, anyway, Shad's a pretty pretty decent guy in a, in, in a lot of ways, too. And he, he still flies back here to get his hair cut and um, eat pancakes and stuff, so you'll still see him around town. And, uh, and they were all backstage, and when Ario went up to the stage... Like, uh, I can't remember which one of them, I think it was their manager, like, grabbed me and goes, go up. And I went up and I thought, oh, I'm going to, he just wants to give me the best seat in the house and stand on the side of the stage. I had no idea they were going to ask me to play with them. Finally, Megan Kelly, your favorite Champagne native or just top five? Yeah, no, and there's a lot more people from Champagne. I, I met Roger Ebert, gave me key to the city. Very, very, I have a lot of respect for that guy. He was, he was a really wonderful man. Uh, didn't agree with him on all of his movie reviews stuff, but I certainly agreed with him on his worldview as far as him uh, being a very, very uh, progressive person of, with regards to civil rights and human rights. There's some big, huge rap star who was born here but moved away when he was kindergarten or something. Ludicrous. Like yeah, yeah, ludicrous. YouTube. The founders of YouTube from Champaign, Illinois. In their dorm room. So we got to get this monetized. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and so, okay, so there's another thing. When I was mayor, I met, and I, I can't remember anybody's name. I met the guy who was the co-creator of Ethernet, upon which the Internet's founded at, the, at a White House uh, event for uh, broadband. <laughs> and, you know, he was saying at the time when they created the original framework for the Internet, he's like, I don't know what we're going to do with this. He said, we had no idea. He said, oh, well, it's a squirrel water skiing, you know. And you can share it with your friends. Woo! Um, but he was really a big proponent of broadband because he's, he just said it's going to change everything. And it's, it, we're going to live in a different uh, – we're going to communicate, upload, download, and live on a whole different platform, on a virtual platform. And now with the pandemic, I think about his words every day in that we are learning to uh, work from home, communicate from home, socialize from home. And it's forced us into a, uh, we do business over the fiber and we enjoy our, our most joyous times are when we're outdoors, not near people, which maybe isn't such a bad thing. Well, thanks again to the mayor, Don Gerard, or as his friends call him, Mr. Mayor. You know, I asked him about REO Speedwagon. I forgot to ask him about REO Speed Dealer, the band I toured with in 2002 that Jason Newstead produced, but maybe next time. 
In the meantime, thank you for listening to this episode of the Meet Meet Podcast. Please go on to Apple Podcasts and leave me a five-star review. Email me at meetmeetpod at gmail.com to be featured on the Coyote Corner. And check us out next week where we'll be talking about the 1994 album released by the band Buzz Oven from not too far from me, Wilmington, North Carolina, entitled Soar. And, uh, you know, it lives up to the name. But I will talk to you next week on Meet Meet. And yes, that is the best that I could come up with. Bye.